Welcome to Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Ronsman. Today is Sunday, June 27th. This program brings you a breakdown of the week's news from Israel. We go behind the headlines to offer listeners in-depth understanding and context to help them make sense of events in Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story Marketing can help customers find your business, visit originstorymarketing.com. Thousands of Palestinians protest the death of Abbas critic. Thousands of Palestinians protest the death of activist Nizar Banat, who was abducted, beaten, and died in PA custody on Thursday. Mr. Banat had been a long-standing critic of the Palestinian Authority. His primary criticisms were of financial corruption as well as security coordination with Israel. Known for his biting social media messaging, one of his final posts was a condemnation of the Palestinian Authority's decision to cancel the deal with Israel to receive 1.4 million doses of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. He was particularly scathing in his critique that while the PA returned 90,000 doses intended for the general Palestinian population, it retained 10,000 doses for the Palestinian nomenclatura. Mr. Banat's house was recently shot at by unidentified gunmen. The 44-year-old father of four fled to the Israeli-controlled portion of the city of Hebron, where he hoped to avoid arrest by the Palestinian security services. Early Thursday morning, Palestinian security officers stormed the home where he was hiding. According to family members, he was stripped naked, pepper sprayed, and severely beaten before being taken into custody. The 44-year-old father of four's death was announced two hours later. Spontaneous protests erupted at his funeral in Hebron, as well as smaller protests in the PA center of power, Ramallah. While protests have remained limited to these two cities, they have been ongoing since Thursday. There is a concern that the protests could spread more widely. These protests are unprecedented in Palestinian society and highlight Fatah's crisis of legitimacy. Unlike previous protests, these protests explicitly call for Abbas to stand down. Hebron, or El Khalil in Arabic, is amongst the most religiously conservative of Palestinian cities. It has long been seen as a stronghold of the Hamas movement. Conversely, Ramallah is the most secular and western Palestinian city. It is also the power center of the PA and Fatah. Protests here have been violently dispersed by PA security forces. The protests are smaller, but yet they continue. The United States called for an investigation into Mr. Banat's death. The European Union released a statement saying that they were shocked and saddened. The European Union is one of the largest financial backers of the PA. This Tuesday, the EU provided the Palestinians with $425 million. Nearly half of these funds were delivered directly to the Palestinian Authority. Israeli Navy received second of four German-built stealth corvettes. Israel recently received the second of four planned SAR-6 stealth corvette ships. The ship is based on the German Braunschweig-class corvette. However, it has been redesigned and substantially modified to accommodate Israeli-built sensors and missiles, such as the naval version of Iron Dome and the Barak-8 surface-to-air missile system. The Barak-8 is jointly designed and produced by Israel and India. The ship is needed to protect Israel's natural gas platforms in the Mediterranean Sea against naval and rocket attack. Hezbollah, Iran's most powerful and effective proxy, has claimed that Israel's gas fields actually lie in Lebanese waters. This makes them a high-value military target for Iran and Hezbollah. Israel has experienced an energy revolution in recent years. The discovery of offshore natural gas deposits has allowed Israel to refit its energy plants to use domestic natural gas rather than imported coal as had previously been the case. Currently, 70% of Israeli electricity is generated by its own domestic natural gas production. 
By 2030, Israel is hoping that the remaining 30% will be generated through renewables, primarily solar. This is a dramatic shift for a country that until recently had to import all of its energy from foreign sources. Israel has also entered into advanced negotiations with Cyprus and Greece. They are in advanced discussions about building a pipeline from Israel to the Greek mainland. This would give Israel access to the European energy market. The development of natural gas platforms has necessitated that Israel substantially improve its naval capabilities to defend these national assets. Attack on Iranian nuclear site reported to damage centrifuge production facility. An attack on a nuclear facility in the Iranian city of Karaj, northwest of the capital Tehran, was reported on Wednesday. In past incidents, the Iranian government has had to respond to outside reports of attacks. In this instance, Tehran attempted to get out ahead of the story and immediately announced that the attack had been thwarted by Iranian security forces. Unsourced reports in the Hebrew media have claimed otherwise. It is being reported that this factory, which produces parts for centrifuges used to enrich uranium, was heavily damaged by drones launched from Iranian territory. This too is significant. Iran has developed a highly sophisticated drone production capability. Many of the Iranian drones have been reverse engineered from captured American models. The Iranian drone program has achieved great success in their support of the Houthi rebels in Yemen in their war against Saudi Arabia. The most spectacular drone attack was on the Abqaiq oil processing facility in September of 2019. This attack temporarily took 5% of global oil production offline. The Iranians have pointed the finger at the Israelis for attacks in the past that have included an attack on the Natanz uranium enrichment facility in April. Last July, unexplained fires broke out in a nearby centrifuge production facility. The Iranians later claimed that it was sabotage and executed an employee. Iran has also blamed Israel for the death of scientist and founder of the Iranian nuclear program, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Last week, Iran's nuclear power plant in Bushir was temporarily shut down for technical reasons. The country claimed that this was not an issue of sabotage and that the plant would be back online in the coming days. There has been unconfirmed speculation that this too was an attack from outside parties. The Iranian nuclear power plant in Bushir was built by the Russian government and its contractor, Atamstroy Export. This plant uses uranium delivered by the Russians, who are also responsible for the handling of nuclear materials. Tel Aviv's Gay Pride Parade takes place Friday. In the largest event to take place in Israel since the start of restrictions related to the COVID-19 virus, Tel Aviv held its annual Gay Pride Parade on Friday. It is estimated that 100,000 people were in attendance, making this one of the largest global events to take place anywhere in the world since March of 2020. The parade was canceled in 2020 due to COVID-19 restrictions. 2019's event attracted a quarter of a million people. Tel Aviv is considered a center of gay culture in the conservative Middle East. Homosexuality is anathema in the region, and homosexual behavior is criminalized in most neighboring countries. Capital punishment remains on the books for homosexuality in a number of Middle Eastern countries. Jerusalem held its Gay Pride Parade June 3rd. The annual Jerusalem event is far smaller and has historically been marred by violence. In 2005, a religious extremist named Yishai Schlissel stabbed and wounded a number of parade participants. He served 10 years in prison for his crime and was released in 2015. That same year, he returned to the parade and began stabbing participants once again. Unfortunately, in 2015, these attacks resulted in the death of a 16-year-old young woman named Shira Banki. The attack was condemned across the political spectrum in Israel. This year's event brought in approximately 7,500 people and occurred without incident. Foreign Minister Yair Lapid meets U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Rome. 
Ford Minister Yair Lapid met with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Rome on Sunday. The Secretary of State highlighted the shared values and shared interests between the United States and the State of Israel. Mr. Blinken stated that the United States and Israel have the same objective of preventing Iran from developing nuclear weapons, although the two countries sometimes differ on tactics. He lauded the openness and directness of security discussions. In one of the few expressions of continuity with the Trump administration, Secretary Blinken reiterated American support for the Abraham Accords, which normalized ties between Israel and four additional Arab states, so long as this was not a substitute for efforts on the Palestinian issue. Secretary Blinken vowed to work with Lapid to offer a more hopeful future for everyone, Palestinians and Israelis alike, with equal measures of opportunity and dignity. For his part, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid lamented that partisanship had been injected into the U.S.-Israel relationship. This was a tacit criticism of the perceived partisan tilt of the Netanyahu government. Netanyahu famously had tense ties with the Obama administration and a very warm and laudatory relationship with Republican President Donald Trump. Lapid stated that, In recent years, mistakes were made. Israel's bipartisan status was hurt. We will fix this together. Lapid also acknowledged disagreements between the countries regarding returning to the JCPOA agreement with Iran. He said that Israel had serious reservations about a restored deal, but vowed that the place to deliberate these disagreements is in direct professional dialogue, not press conferences. This, too, was an apparent critique of the confrontational style of the Netanyahu government. Israel sends IDF team to Miami to assist with rescue efforts. The Israel Defense Forces sent a search and rescue delegation to Florida to assist with rescue efforts for a partially collapsed residential tower in the beachfront city of Surfside, located in Miami-Dade County. The Defense Ministry stated that the team was being sent after discussions between Israeli defense officials and Miami government officials. The team will be comprised of personnel with expertise in search and rescue, engineering, and trauma counseling. As of Sunday, nine people have been confirmed dead and 155 remain unaccounted for. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett spoke with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. According to a transcript from the Prime Minister's office, Bennett told DeSantis that, The United States is our greatest friend, and we stand by your side during this difficult time. We all pray for the safety of the wounded. I instructed all authorities in the Israeli government to assist in any way that may be required. Israel has developed a reputation for being amongst the first nations in the world to send humanitarian teams to disaster areas. Israel has sent search and rescue teams as well as medical services to Turkey in the aftermath of a 1999 earthquake, Haiti after an earthquake in 2010, the Philippines in 2013 after a typhoon, Nepal in 2015 after an earthquake, and Mexico after an earthquake there in 2017. In March of this year, Israel sent a team to Equatorial Guinea, to provide assistance in the wake of a series of accidental explosions on a military base. In 2016, the World Health Organization recognized Israel's international disaster relief efforts and army field hospitals. They were rated number one in the world at that time. Editorial. The views and opinions expressed in this editorial represent those of the author and are not necessarily that of Israel Week in Review. Israel Week in Review encourages editorial submissions. They should be between 1,000 and 2,000 words and may be submitted to comments at IsraelWeekInReview.com. However one feels about the Trump administration and domestic American affairs, there is no denying that this administration contributed more towards the security and standing of the state of Israel than any American presidency since that of Harry Truman. It is imperative that Israel pocket these impressive diplomatic gains, nurture its new diplomatic relationships, and not allow its negotiating position to erode once again.
The Trump administration's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital has greatly strengthened Israel's position on this important issue. Of course, Israel has maintained Jerusalem as its capital since 1949. The Knesset, President's Residence, Supreme Court, and host of government ministries are all based there. When ambassadors are appointed by their respective countries, they are confirmed at the President's Residence, Beit HaNasi, in Jerusalem. Nonetheless, American recognition of Israeli claims to the city have strengthened Israel's hand and led to advances with other nations. The United States opened its embassy in Jerusalem in 2018, as did Guatemala. Earlier this week, Honduras opened its embassy in Jerusalem as well. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez officiated at the ribbon-cutting and inauguration of the new facility. This would not have happened absent American recognition. Importantly, a number of Central European countries have changed their positions regarding Jerusalem in a repudiation of the official European Union policy. The Czech Republic and Hungary opened branch offices of their embassies, thumbing their noses at Brussels. Brazil, Serbia, and Kosovo have all indicated that they will be relocating their embassies to Jerusalem in the future. The American recognition of the Golan Heights will be very difficult to roll back. There is currently little pressure for Israel to make any concessions to the Syrian regime. Shockingly, former Israeli President Ehud Olmert engaged in negotiations with the Assad regime in 2009, where he agreed, in principle, to relinquish the Golan Heights in exchange for a peace deal. Thankfully, Israel was saved from this disastrous decision by the intransigence of its enemies. The Syrians broke off negotiations with Israel over 2008-2009's fighting with Hamas, known as Operation Cast Lead. The recklessness of Omer's decision was revealed a mere two years later, when Syria descended into a brutal civil war. It is rather interesting that Syria was one of the countries which protested most loudly regarding Operation Cast Lead against the Hamas threat in Gaza. In over three weeks of fighting, nearly 1,100 Gazans were killed. Over two-thirds of these were combatants. The histrionics over this conflict were extreme, but not surprising. The operation was, of course, labeled as genocidal. It was called a massacre, and Israel was compared, not for the first time, with Nazi Germany. A mere two years later, the nation of Syria descended into unspeakable barbarism and civil war. Nearly 600,000 people were killed in this conflict, which is still ongoing. 160,000 of these were civilians, some targeted by chemical weapons deployed by their own government. 6.6 million people were turned into refugees, and 6.7 million others became displaced persons. These mind-numbing losses become almost incomprehensible when one considers that the entire population of the Syrian Arab Republic is 17.5 million people. The Golan Heights is quite simply indispensable to Israel's security. It sits on an elevated plateau that makes the adjacent territory defensible. Mount Hermon, or Har Hermon in Hebrew, is the highest peak in Israel. The IDF is able to observe combatants in Syria and Lebanon from the IDF observation post on the mountain. It functions as Israel's primary strategic warning system. In fact, Har Hermon is sometimes referred to as the eyes of the nation because of this. On a clear day, it is possible to see as far as the coastal plain where most Israelis live. Retreating from the heights would make Israel incredibly difficult to defend, highlighting Israel's most challenging security problem, lack of strategic depth. Had Israel withdrawn from the heights, the Syrian civil war would have been on its doorstep. Had this misguided withdrawal taken place, it is possible that there would have been ISIS terrorists operating on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, known as the Kinneret. Enemy combatants would have the high ground and be able to shell Israeli territory at will. In retrospect, this offer was astonishingly ill-considered. The fact that it was offered at all is testament to the Israeli desire for peace and regional integration, a desire that led Old Mert to make this highly irresponsible offer. Two other recent Israeli offers to the Palestinians have also been shown to be foolhardy. Both Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert made offers of statehood to the Palestinians that would have left Israel dangerously vulnerable. Once again, the primary security issue that Israel faces is a lack of strategic depth. 
The coastal plain of Israel is one of the most densely populated regions of the world. It is extremely vulnerable to attack from the east, particularly from combatants positioned in the mountainous areas of Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank. This territory forms an elevated spine running north to south that would leave the Tel Aviv metropolitan area vulnerable. The majority of Israel's population, its airport, and economic heartland could be easily shelled with artillery and rockets, much as happens every few years from Gaza. The difference here is that topographically Israel would be even more vulnerable, and the primary target would be the Tel Aviv metropolitan area, or Gushtan. During the Annapolis peace talks in 2007, Omert offered the Palestinians a capital in East Jerusalem and a withdrawal from the Old City. In its place would be an international peacekeeping force composed of the United States, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. All settlements outside of the major settlement blocks would have been evacuated. The settlement blocks themselves would amount to approximately 6.8% of the West Bank's territory, but comparable Israeli territory would have been swapped on a one-to-one -one basis. A special access road would have been built linking the West Bank with Gaza. Israel would agree to settle a number of the descendants of Palestinian refugees within its own borders. Generous financial compensation and redevelopment projects would be initiated that would develop the Palestinian economy. In short, Olmert provided the absolute maximalist Israeli offer. Despite this, Hamas rejected negotiations outright. They do not hesitate to declare that they seek Israel's destruction. The Palestinian negotiator from Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas, rejected Israel's recklessly generous offer and pressed further. According to Condoleezza Rice, he insisted on a right of return for anyone claiming descent from a Palestinian refugee into Israel in perpetuity. This would amount to millions of human beings and would demographically sink the state. While this negotiated solution is not as violent as Hamas on its face, the ultimate result is the same, the destruction of the state of Israel. This Palestinian inability to conceive of a settlement of the conflict that does not involve the reversal of Israel's war of independence has remained a constant of Palestinian nationalism. The question remains, can Palestinian nationalism be constructed around a positive vision of self-determination and economic development rather than mere opposition to Israel? This remains an open question. Some of Israel's Arab neighbors seem to have lost their patience with Palestinian maximalist demands. They understand that Israel is an established fact and that the country does not have any territorial designs in any other country in the region. The Arab monarchies were also the only Arab governments that were not totally destabilized during the Arab Spring. The region is highly politically unstable and the Saudis and Emiratis in particular now recognize that Israel has developed into something of a global power. If Israel will ally with them strategically against Iran and be a military and economic asset to their respective countries, it is necessary that the country remain defensible and militarily strong. Until the Trump administration, the Palestinians were able to alternate tactics between negotiations and violence, including suicide bombings and rockets. They could negotiate with Israel and extract concrete commitments and concessions. When that tactic would no longer bear fruit, they would use violent methods while claiming the actions were spontaneous and not strategic. They could always do this comfortable in the knowledge that they could return to negotiations at precisely the point at which they left off. They never lost ground and there was no incentive to compromise. They could simply restart the process once again and extract further concessions. This strategy worked remarkably well. This is evident from the peace offers made by Olmert and Barak. But the Palestinians finally overreached. For the first time, an American president with little patience for the largely ineffectual peace processors sought to cut the Gordian knot. An end-of-conflict agreement was released that was substantially less generous than previous Israeli offers. Unlike other negotiations, the Americans actually printed a map that outlined the parameters of a final status deal. This included Israel maintaining the Jordan Valley as well as all settlements. Territorial contiguity would be ensured for both parties through the construction of bypass roads and tunnels. The Palestinians would receive additional land in the Negev and would control all major cities and towns. 
while this was wildly unacceptable to the Palestinians, it likely doesn't seem all that objectionable to a number of Arab states. The amount of land that Israel would annex is roughly equivalent to the size of the state of Rhode Island, a mere speck on the map. Its importance to sustaining defensible Israeli borders, however, is far more strategically important to Israel than the limited acreage would indicate. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has long received international news coverage that is vastly disproportionate to the number of casualties involved and the amount of territory in dispute. Of course, the Palestinians will not agree to a settlement that approximates the map of the Trump peace plan. However, they have also not agreed to far more generous Israeli offers, offers that were likely beyond what any Israeli government could safely accept. Since that time, the region has deteriorated dramatically. The Egyptian government has changed hands numerous times since the unrest of the Arab Spring. It is now run by the military dictatorship of Abd al-Fattah al-Sisi. Lebanon has become a totally failed state. Its economy has collapsed and the central government does not have the ability to provide basic services to its people. More troublingly, Iran's proxy, Hezbollah, is the most powerful military force in the country. They could dispense with the Lebanese army in short order. They keep it in place as a fig leaf. As discussed earlier, the situation in Syria has been nothing short of a war-torn hellscape. The Assad government, through sheer brutality and the assistance of Iran and Russia, has managed to reimpose its authority over much of the country. Who is to say that sometime in the future the Kingdom of Jordan could not collapse? Israel needs to be prepared for every eventuality. It will need to maintain total air supremacy west of the Jordan River. It will also need to maintain a presence in the Jordan Valley. This peace agreement must last in perpetuity and not be predicated on a geopolitical situation that may not endure forever. The development of the Palestinian economy should be prioritized. This shrinking of the conflict is the only feasible measure for the time being. De-escalation and humanitarian assistance need to be the order of the day. The United Arab Emirates will likely play a prominent role in investing in both the Israeli and Palestinian economies. They will almost certainly profit with the Israelis. Their assistance to the Palestinians will be done on religious and humanitarian grounds. The Saudis and the Egyptians will play a significant role as well. The Saudis are building a completely new city called Neom in the Tabuk province in northwest Saudi Arabia, connected by bridge to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. They are currently in the midst of a $500 billion development on the coast of the Gulf of Aqaba. The Saudis believe that this is their best hope to diversify the Saudi economy when the petroleum era comes to its inevitable end. The proximity of Neom to Aqaba and Eilat are indicative of Saudi Arabia's peaceful intentions with Israel. Israel could not go back to the status quo ante. Previous attempts to accommodate the Palestinians were quite simply unsuccessful. With Hamas on the ascendancy, Palestinian rejectionism will definitely increase. The decision has been made to sideline Hamas. Its militancy only exacerbates tensions in the region. Fatah is rapidly sliding into irrelevance. Peace in the region will not take place through a grand, all-encompassing agreement between the Palestinians and Israelis. It will be incremental, economic, and work its way from the outside in. That is the best that we can hope for in the foreseeable future. This has been Ben Ronsman from Israel Week in Review. We go behind the headlines to provide you with insight and understanding of the news from Israel and the Middle East. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping your business find its customers through search engine optimization. For a complimentary consultation, visit originstorymarketing.com.